Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. My guest today is May Al Nakib. May is a writer and academic. She is an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Kuwait University. Her academic research focuses on cultural issues in the Middle East with a special emphasis on gender, cosmopolitanism, and post-colonial issues. She joined me today to talk about her stunning debut novel, An Unlasting Home, published by Saki Books. May, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, there is so much in An Unlasting Home that I want to ask you about. It's a brilliant and at times breathtaking away read. But let me begin by asking you about a scene that, as a parent, had me on the edge of my seat. The monkey hanging from the fan and holding the baby Nura upside down by the ankles. Where did that come from? (laughs) So an impossible story like that one could only be true, right? (laughs) In fact, it absolutely is. The monkey grabbing the baby, who was my maternal uncle, his father rescuing the baby in exchange for bananas, the visiting ladies, the held sheet, the monkey holding the baby upside down by the feet on a fan, all true. Um, You know, but the details, the embellishments come from my imagination. And, you know, in fact, I often forget what's based on a true story and what's made up. The lines just sometimes blur for me. Was there, in fact, a fan? Was the baby really held upside down? Sometimes I'm not sure and I have to go back and and check my notes. But I think in some ways that's the magic of of fiction, you know, the way it um, transforms traces of reality into something else that serves its own purpose. And here in the novel, the baby is Noura, one of the five main women characters, mother of the protagonist, Sara. Yeah, well, that's very interesting because I just had a hunch that this has got to be a true story anecdotally retrieved from family history. And there it is. I mean, it's it's just part of, of what I think is just such a wonderful, wonderful story. But you mentioned this. This is, um, and we should explain to our listeners, it's an intergenerational story that's told primarily through the intersecting stories of, of five women, one of whom is this baby, Nura. So can you tell us who these women are and how they all intersect? So An Unlasting Home is, as you've said, an intergenerational story that traces the lives of five um, pretty formidable women, seven really if you count Sara's great-grandmothers, Sheikha and Yeliz. It spans the early 20th century um, up until 2013, ranging across the Middle East, India and the United States. It opens in 2013 when Sara, the protagonist, a professor of philosophy at Kuwait University, is accused of blasphemy under a new law designating it a capital crime. As she waits, awaits trial, she looks back, coming to terms with her own past, her families, and her countries. She sort of attempts to untangle the complicated generational lines of the women who made her, her grandmothers, Lulwa and Yasmin, her mother, Nura, the monkey girl, 
and her beloved Aya or Nanny, Maria, who helped raise her. And in, in doing so, Sada begins to come to terms with some of the reasons behind why her life has stalled, including why she returned to Kuwait from the U.S. in the first place. And in the process of collecting the stories of her grandmothers um, and her mother and Maria, it's Sada who gives form and, and structure to an unlasting home. Her voice is interwoven through the stories of her grandmothers in part one and in part two, um, the stories of her mother and her uh, nanny Maria, her surrogate mother. And then in the third and final part, her own story alternating between the recent present and the the recent past rather, and the present buildup to trial. So that intersecting polyphonic narrative structure of the novel holds together the, the voices of all five women. And the trajectory of the novel follows Sara's realization that this collection of stories is in fact who she is. Yes. And that the, the way you seamlessly move back and forth in time and and use use history. I found that really, really fascinating. And 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 I I, I just thought that the interweaving of the women's stories with the story of Kuwait was was just uh, captured me completely as a reader. For example, the impact that Saddam Hussein's 1991 invasion had on Kuwait and the sense of loss for a country that moved from tolerance to intolerance. I mean, can you talk about that? And if you think that that earlier, more tolerant Kuwait is, is now lost. I do think that the 1991 invasion has been one of the key reasons behind Kuwait's shift away from tolerance toward conservatism and increasing intolerance, which is one of the things I explore in, in the novel. But it's it's not the only one. And I also think in the novel, I kind of try to, to point this out. I mean, it's somewhat understandable that following the shock of the invasion, Kuwaitis would experience um, a sense of betrayal and close in on themselves. And that's what happened. But we might also identify um, the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, along with the Iraq-Iran War and the reverberation of these events um, across the region as two additional pivotal reasons for this change. Also, the infiltration of the Muslim Brotherhood into Kuwait following their expulsion from Egypt and their presence as teachers in the public school system um, certainly helped produce a kind of more conservative youth. And then in addition, the loss of the Palestinian community after the invasion and therefore the loss of their important role in the education system and in many other fields as highly qualified professionals indispensable members of the community since at least the 1940s was extremely damaging and has contributed to the rise in intolerance. I mean, other demographic changes have also affected the shift away from openness and <clears throat> the unethical stance toward the Bedouin or stateless people, migrant workers, is both an indication and a result of, of, this, of this intolerance. Now, whether, you know, I, I'm uncertain, I'm unsure whether um, that more tolerant Kuwait is lost forever. I mean, the rise in xenophobic and homophobic and sexist discourse and actions is worrying, to say the least. I mean, it's been over 30 years since the invasion. So we should have been able to work through that national trauma by now. Some things have improved. I mean, women have the vote. We hear voices of resistance. But the pace is, is sluggish. 
And I think also the, the global rise in conservatism and intolerance also intensifies and encourages similar tendencies here, I think. And so, I mean, my sense about all of this is that whatever field you happen to be in, you know, we need to do whatever we can to kind of strive towards more tolerance, even if we think we're not making a difference, you know, small changes accrue. So you just kind of keep going with that. And and you yourself, um, you, you spent time in the United States, you, you spent time here in the UK as a child. Uh, my my sense of Kuwait, because I was there, it was post uh, the, the invasion, but I still had a sense of a country compared to, for example, Saudi Arabia, which had an open uh, and accessible media, for example, that had a had a, a feeling about it that I didn't find in, in, in other Gulf states. Let me put it that way. And yet, as you say today, I sense, and you're quite right to make the point that it's happening all over the world. So it's not just Kuwait by any stretch of measure, that, that, that things are closing in, not opening up. Indeed. Indeed. I mean, I just think that that is, that's something that we're, we are experiencing, and I think we have to deal with it, you know, on a... I said, as I said, local levels, regional levels, and global levels, because what what happens beyond the the borders of one's own country certainly has an effect, um, you know, locally as well. So, yeah, um, yeah. You you mentioned Maria, who's uh, Sarah's second mother, and, and of course she's a migrant, and like so many in the Gulf states, she leaves her family to earn the money to support her children back in India, and as you write. Her story, you expose the sacrifice that migrant workers are forced to make. And that situation of migrants in the Gulf is a story that really needs more telling. Am I wrong in thinking that has to come more from within the Gulf rather than, as always seems to happen, coming from outside and outside critics? You know, I think there's space for both narratives, for both critiques. I mean, there's so much to critique about the status and treatment of migrant workers in the Gulf. And those critiques need to be made, whether they originate from outside the Gulf or from within it. My preference would be to address the issues head on here in the Gulf, taking full responsibility for all the offenses and injustices, you know, and working systematically to end them without delay. For me, in An Unlasting Home, I wanted to tell a different kind of story that's not always uh, represented, and that is the relationship that develops between nannies and the children they help raise. As you said, Maria leaves her own children behind in India to care for the children of strangers in Kuwait, and she does this to ensure the survival of her children. But over time, those other children, Sara and Kerim, become her children too. And Maria becomes the emotional center for Kerim and Sara, you know, and she kind of fills the role or fills in the gaps left by their own parents. Because Maria is a second mother to Sara, she plays a really significant role and as significant a role as the other women in Sara's life, you know, and so for me, in aligning her story with the stories of the other women, it became clear, it becomes clear that how as women, as mothers, they share many of the same obstacles and aspirations. I mean, it doesn't matter where they're from, these women want similar things, basically better lives for themselves and for their children. And that point about the migrants and, and and embracing it and trying to move their story forward, there's also, and you touched upon the Badoon, which is the stateless people. And again, that is a whole segment of Kuwaiti society that's kind of trapped, isn't it? 
It is. I mean, it, it's one of, it, it, there are people that are doing a lot of work in these areas, you know, for so to, to make these voices heard and also the rights and issues that are, are not being dealt with. And yet, again, as I said before, it, it happens at a pace that's rather too slow, um, that it, we need to pick up the pace on these issues and, and push forward in, in remedying what are clear injustices. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Mayel Nakib, author of An Unlasting Home, published by Saki Books. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Women in the Middle East may have, it seems to me, a very challenging course to chart in societies that remain deeply patriarchal, that are in many ways hostile. Uh, the women in your book are strong, powerful, determined. What were your role models for these women? You know, I mean, women in Kuwait and in the Middle East in general are strong, powerful and determined precisely because they have to chart a course through those challenging patriarchal forces, you know, so I I have of course been inspired by many women in my life and and you know they they made they've made me who I am and have of course influenced um the stories that I tell but in addition to the personal these characters have just been inspired by the women of Kuwait who enjoyed you know a degree of freedom not shared by their counterparts I mean you mentioned um, that Kuwait felt different when you came, when you visited Kuwait, it had a different kind of feeling to you than other parts of the Gulf. And I think one of those differences has to do with women's visibility and, and their role, their social role, social and political role. And this has to do with the specific history of Kuwait, I think, as a seafaring, pearling port town. I mean, if you imagine men spending months of the year um, away from home, leaving the burden of responsibility on women who dealt with the money, with raising children, with working for the family's survival. And this streak of autonomy and independence carried across generations into the post-oil period up until today, I think. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, women were educated, they started attending university, and women made a point in that early period of burning their abayas. This was like a kind of symbolic moment. There were no laws preventing them from wearing whatever they wanted, but they were rebelling quite explicitly against customs and traditions, and they won. And so I find this history of, of this early history to be very moving and, and very inspiring. But it's the case, isn't it? And you'll correct me, May, if I'm wrong. Is that are there any women in uh, in Kuwait's parliament today? Well, th that's a compli more complicated question than you might think to respond. So we we did recently have an election in which two women were elected, and now that parliament has been declared uh, illegal for reasons I won't get into. And then the uh, previous parliament was reinstated and then dissolved. So now we are without a parliament and we shall see. But it hasn't been easy. Um, so it takes time. I think we would benefit from having quotas, you know, things like that. But that has not happened. That has not happened. Mm. Yeah, I guess the quotas is, is, again, you come back to the issue of the conservatives in, in, in that parliament. And it remains perhaps that. What you're saying, things are moving slowly and perhaps not quickly enough on that front as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Something that's impressed reviewers, and it certainly impressed me, is that this is a debut novel. I know you've written a short story, a book of short stories, which is very, very successful. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about the process. Was An Unlasting Home difficult to write? Um, so, you know, I knew at the outset of this project that I wanted it to be big. I wanted it to be a kind of epic and I, it, that it would have maps and family trees. It would be sprawling, inclusive. You know, I wanted to tell that kind of story. I knew I wanted to tell a story about women from this part of the world. And slowly, as the characters started to come to life, I had a sense that there would be these five key voices. So in a sense, the form of the novel, which is something I think about as I write, um, you know, divided it's divided into three parts and it alternates between these characters, was a solution to a problem. How do I tell um, the complex, intersecting story of these five women across time and space in a way that remained comprehensible? I don't plan all this from the start. I mean, in a way, I, I allow things to unfold the way they want to. And then I'm captured by a story or by the characters or by a place. And then I allow myself to be pulled. Um, for a certain time. And then at a certain point, I start to push and direct a little bit more. And this push and pull kind of gets me through. And, and then begins the work of shaping and editing and rewriting. And I consider and reconsider every word, every comma, every aspect of writing ruthlessly and endlessly. I don't I don't know if I would I would say that it's difficult. I think writing is difficult, you know, but it's a pleasurable difficulty. But does you sit down and just does it just sort of start to flow for you, or do you have to kind of pace around a bit and then sit down and jump up and grab a cup of coffee? What? what yeah, the, I yeah. I think some days, you know, so it, I think it's a mix of all of that. I think some days, you know, you've got a great flow. For me, a great flow can be, you know, one page after six, seven hours. You know, so I, I, yeah, it's slow. It doesn't always go quickly, um, but. And then some days, you know, you you just figure something out, like there's a problem or a knot, and you're kind of wrestling with that all day. And you just maybe at the end of the day, if you're lucky, you've kind of figured something out. And then the next day you can have that flow. And, you know, I think it just, it sort of depends. The editing process goes faster for me in a way, because you've got something there that you're, you're really sort of digging into and working through. So I, I think it all depends. It's a mix of both. But do you have these moments where something this happens to me? I've I've got this naughty column that I'm working on, and and suddenly in the middle of the night I wake up and I go, oh, that's it. <laughs> so. That absolutely happens. That often happens when I'm swimming. So sometimes when I have problem, you know, when I have something that I, and I'm thinking about it, overthinking, I think in many ways, and you let it go, and you I do something physical, but especially swimming, and and you know you're just sort of going with that and moving with the water. And then the solution seems to arrive, arrive, you know, as if from from nowhere. But uh, that does happen. Yeah. Now, May, when you look around the Middle East, when you see what is happening in Tunisia and Lebanon, Palestine, Sudan, Iraq, I mean, I could go on. It's a painful list. What do you see? What is the future for the region, for women, for minorities? What is it looking like to you? I mean, that is a really big question. I mean, things don't look good, do they? Not regionally, not locally, and with global pressures always sort of bearing down. I tend to be a bit of a Cassandra when it comes to Kuwait. But in fact, you know, I, I teach and I see a new gen generation of people coming along. 
they're going to have different ideas, different influences and motivations, you know, and I feel like young people these days are impatient and often, though not always, less jaded and so maybe more open to, you know, solutions that we're not considering. So, you know, that's always possible. You asked about the, you know, the, the for, you know, what, what's going to happen for minorities and for women. I mean, when the economic and political conditions in a nation state decline, women and minorities pay the price. And we see this everywhere, of course, and it's an old problem and we should have solved by now, I think. What worries me most in Kuwait specifically is the incredible decline in the standard of education at all levels from elementary school to university. There doesn't seem to be any desire or inclination to remedy this catastrophic deterioration. And because of that, my sense of the future here, at least, is bleak. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think to gauge the future of a country, one has to assess the public system of education, its quality and its reach. And if that's in good order, then good things will follow. If it's not, whether as a result of economic, political, or ideological circumstances, then I think the future is is pretty doomed. Yeah, you've put your finger right on it. I mean, I look at the education system here in the UK, uh, in the um, state sector is really suffering. And uh, we, of course, are in the midst of teacher strikes. But Absolutely. And you look at North America, the education system there, it's a very troubling and, and worrying scenario. So once again, Kuwait is sadly not alone. I, 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 I'm going to ask you a, one more question before I get to the final question, which is the title. I, it suddenly occurred to me, I had this moment in the middle of the night, I must ask May about the title. The title comes from a really wonderful quote by um, James Joyce in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Uh, and I thought, so I really, the title took me a long time to arrive at. I had a different title, a working title that I thought was it. And my editor really pushed me on the title. She felt like my title wasn't doing justice to the story. And I went on and on. I think I came up with hundreds of titles in the span of a week or two weeks, and none of them were working. And then actually, this one arrived in the middle of the night. That's funny that you you brought that up because... I remembered birds in, of course, in, in Joyce, you know, and I, because the trope of birds really runs through this, uh, runs through this novel. And it was very important to me because it captures the sense of migration and movement and, you know, all of that. So I wanted to have an element of, of the, the birds in, in the title and, but it wasn't working as I said. So I, I, but I remembered that the trope of birds also runs through Joyce. And so I picked up my old copy of um, Portrait and I just went through it, looked at the things I had underlined. And this this beautiful quote was underlined and, you know, an unlasting home just jumped out at me. And now I just knew instantly this is it. That was a eureka <laughs> moment. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. All right. Now, this will be my final question. May. Uh, <laughs> Are you working on another novel? And uh, I, I hope you are, because I, I, for one, cannot wait to read it. So where, where are you on that one? <laughs> I am working on a novel, and it's set on the Kuwaiti island of Felica. Have you been to Felica? No. So Felica has a history that can be traced back to the Bronze Age, you know, and it connects with the Dilmun dynasty. There are ancient uh, Greek ruins from the time of Alexander the Great there, as well as ancient pagan shrines and a Christian citadel. I mean, it's really a remarkable place. 
it was inhabited by Kuwaitis until uh, 1991 when the inhabitants were forced out. And then after liberation, the islanders weren't allowed to return to their homes, which were bought by the Kuwaiti government for security reasons. And when you go to Felaka now, it's this place that's just frozen in time with abandoned, destroyed buildings and homes. But it's just startlingly beautiful. It just has this feeling of just being haunted by history. So, you know, I'm completely captured. And for me, you know, that's going to be the setting of of the next book. Wow, that sounds <laughs> you you've hooked me already. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> May, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful uh, the opportunity to speak with you and congratulations. You. Congratulations on on an unlasting home. It's it, it is a wonderful wonderful read. And I Thank you so much. My pleasure and I encourage everybody who's listening to go out and get that book. Thanks. Thanks May. Thanks, Bill. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was the Kuwaiti-based author and academic Mayel Nakib, who debut novel, An Unlasting Home, published by Saki Books, is out now, and I cannot recommend it too highly. It is quite simply a gripping and masterful exploration of the lives of five women through time and place, and one that explores and underscores the challenges and the history of Kuwait through the stories of these women. Since we launched our podcast three years ago, it's been listened to more than 130,000 times in countries right around the world. So thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like me. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our regular listeners will have noticed that we've moved the podcast to midweek, and we'll be putting it out on Wednesdays from now on. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. <laughs>